Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we give thanks unto thee that thy wisdom governs all things. Thy wisdom, which is seen in all thy works, covers all things great and small. And there is nothing too small nor too great to be outside thy government and thy providential care. Therefore, our Father, we come to thee with thanksgiving, knowing that thou art mindful of us, that all the days of our life, the very hairs of our head are all numbered, that all things come from thee, O Lord, and shall serve thy purpose and shall be a blessing to us throughout all eternity. Our God, we thank thee in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture is Leviticus 22, verses 17 through 25. Our subject, the unblemished offering. The unblemished offering. Leviticus 22, 17 through 25. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, and unto all the children of Israel, and say unto them, Whatsoever he be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers in Israel, that will offer his oblation for all his vows, and for all his freewill offerings, which they will offer unto the Lord for a burnt offering. Ye shall offer at your own will a male without blemish of the bees, of the sheep, or of the goats. But whatsoever hath a blemish, that shall ye not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in beeves or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein blind or broken, or maimed or having a wen or a scurvy or scab, ye shall not offer these unto the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. Either a bullock or a lamb that hath anything superfluous or lacking in his parts, that mayest thou offer for a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. Ye shall not offer unto the Lord that which is bruised or crushed or broken or cut. Neither shall ye make any offering thereof in your land. Neither from a stranger's hand shall ye offer the bread of your God of any of these, because their corruption is in them and blemishes be in them. They shall not be accepted for you. This is a very familiar text because it is so often referred to in the New Testament. We are told that we ourselves are to be living sacrifices, unblemished offerings unto God. 
In verse 22, the clean animals are specified. Those which cannot be sacrificed are those which are blind, disabled, mutilated, with a running scar, with a scab, or an eruption. Permission is given in verse 23 to give animals that are overgrown or stunted as a free will offering only. The unblemished offering required must be perfect. It must be, as Exodus 22.30 points out, no animal younger than eight days. And third, as Deuteronomy 26 following and Exodus 22.30 point out, no bird and her young, a cow and a calf, a ewe and a lamb, a goat and a kid could be offered together. The requirement of an unblemished offering, as I indicated, is repeated in the New Testament more than once, and especially with respect to believers as a living sacrifice. Thus we read in Philippians 2:14 and 15, Do all things without murmuring and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now this tells us what an unblemished offering of ourselves means, that we serve God without murmuring and disputing, that we don't complain endlessly about the portion, the lot God has given us, that we may thereby be blameless and harmless. Again, we read in Second Peter 3.14, which in verse 13 says, The things looked for are a new heaven and a new earth. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that he may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, Peter tells us, the goal of all creation is an unblemished, a perfect creation, morally and physically. And therefore, we ourselves are to work to present ourselves to God without spot and blameless. Then, Again, in uh, 2 Peter 2, verses 12 and 13, uh, we have a reference uh, to the ungodly within the church, the unjust and the blemished. And we read, But these as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. In other words, those within the church who are uh, thoroughly blemished, 
and are rotten because he uses that term more than once, are not of the Christ. They are blemished offerings and rejected. Of course, the church is full of such people, especially in our day. One of the uh, terms that uh, Laurie Eck used the last two days while visiting here and talking with me was of the consumer-oriented church that plagues us today. That's a very telling phrase because this is precisely our problem. The church today has become consumer-oriented. The pulpit is not governed by God but by the congregation. It orients itself not to please God but to please the people. And as a result, you have people who are totally blemished offerings, and both they and the church, therefore, will be rejected of God. Now it is routinely noted, and correctly so, that the unblemished sacrifice represents the sinless and perfect Christ. Now this is true, but it is not the whole story. As these verses make clear to us from Peter and Paul, the blemished offering very clearly refers also to the believer so that the offering represents Christ of whom we are members and us in Christ. It represents what our gifts, our services must be. We cannot offer ourselves and anything that we do is a blemished gift to God. In other words, we cannot give the leftover of our lives and of our time and of our being to God. This is an insult to him. But blemished offerings are routine and Christians expect to be blessed by them. They do things that are fifth and tenth rate at best, and then they feel it's all right because it's for the Lord. I'm doing it for him. That automatically makes it good and blessed. It makes it accursed. Moreover, we are to be the unblemished offering. This, Paul tells us, is our reasonable service. Not the extraordinary service, but the reasonable, the logical one. He declares in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, in verse 24, we have a statement that is the subject of a great deal of interpretation and uncertainty with some. 
In Robert Young's literal translation, it is rendered, As to a bruised or beaten or enlarged or cut thing, ye do not bring it near to Jehovah. Even in your own land, ye do not do it. Now, this definitely includes, with crushed or broken or cut, any animal that has been uh, castrated. Now, some commentators and many ancient rabbis, as well as present Orthodox Jews, have seen this as a prohibition of all emasculation of animals. No steers, in other words. According to Rabbi Hertz, the Hebrew can bear two interpretations. It can mean, he shall not offer such mutilated animals, or it may be taken, according to the rabbis, as a general prohibition of emasculation in men and animals. Some evangelical writers, some very fine ones, have taken a like interpretation of this text. But the context does not give any ground for it. It is very true, as Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 makes clear, that the law does not permit those men who have been castrated to have entrance or membership in the congregation of the Lord. Membership meant eldership. And only men who were heads of houses could be elders, not even whole men who were bachelors. It meant also that as elders over families, they could be elected over families of ten or hundreds or thousands. In other words, that they could rule and only whole men could qualify. The Bible was clear that castration was not a bar to worship nor to salvation. It was simply a bar to a position of rule. Moreover, Scripture gives us dietary laws. And if we had been banned, uh, these animals were banned and we could not eat them, the Bible would very clearly tell us so. So that this kind of extension of interpretation is clearly unwise and wrong. It is, all, unfortunately, all too prevalent. People like to uh, be holier than God, to go one step further than Scripture, as though this made for greater holiness. Instead, it is to be regarded as a sin. Calvin noted with respect to unblemished offerings, and I quote, We perceive then that all defective sacrifices were rejected, that the Israelites might learn sincerely and seriously to consecrate themselves entirely to God and not to play childishly with him, as is often the case. Elsewhere we have seen that all uncleanness is repudiated by God, but we must remember that two things are required for legitimate worship. First, that he who approaches God should be purged from every stain. And secondly, that he should offer nothing except what is pure and free from all 
perfection. What Solomon says, that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, is true, although it be fat and splendid. But in order that the things which are offered by the good should be pleasing to God, another point must also be attended to, that the offering should not be poor and stingy and deficient. And again, by this symbol, as I have already said, they were directed to Christ besides whom no integrity will anywhere be found which will satisfy God. Unquote. Calvin is right in noting that the requirement has to do with worship and with what the worshiper brings to worship in himself and in his life and work. It is a fallacy to abstract worship from the routines of life. Worship must be the culmination of everyday life. We bring to worship the character of our everyday lives, what we are, blemished or unblemished. We do not bring ourselves abstracted from our work, our family, or our character. We do not leave what we have done all week long and what we have thought outside the doors of the place of worship. When worship is abstracted from everyday life, both in what we bring to worship and in what we take from worship into the routines of life, worship becomes sterile and offensive to God. It is a blemished worship. And this is why the prophets railed even against the thoroughly correct worship of the temple. It was empty in the sight of God, even more it was offensive. Because however correct, the people were not. An important aspect, moreover, of this entire section of Leviticus these verses is verse 18 speak unto Aaron and to his sons and then and unto all the children of Israel the guardians of the purity of worship are the clergy and they are first of all addressed there must be a vigilance against blemished offerings a very necessary part of this is the teaching of the whole of God's law and an insistence on a faithfulness to it, on God-centered living. But we have had a consumer-oriented church. One of the interesting things that I have seen over the years is that very often pastors will take over a class in their Christian school, perhaps the class in Bible. And it's very commonly, in the majority of cases, a disaster. It's a disaster for some time. Why? Because they have been so used to a consumer-oriented ministry, to pleasing the people. So they start off by trying to get the children to cooperate instead of laying down the law to them. And it's only after 
Sometimes a class is reduced to anarchy that the minister-teacher begins to lose his temper and lay down the law and suddenly finds that now he has a class that he can control, that he can begin to teach because he has ceased to be consumer-oriented in his teaching and begins to teach with authority. And this is what we need in the church. It is a word from God to Aaron and his sons and through them to all the people. We have a reference to David's concern for this law in Second Samuel 24, verse 24. And for him, a costless offering to God was a blemished one. In Malachi, we see God's indictment of all who show him contempt by coming to the Lord with their blemished offerings. We read in Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8 and 13 through 15, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. In other words, we can bring the leftovers to God. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the, bl- the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. God's point is very clear. We will not offend a human authority by giving him a defective or damaged gift. How can we accept, expect God to be grateful for what men find insulting? The Lord's work and kingdom require only our best from us. Nothing second best or second rate is acceptable to him. One more point. Paul makes clear that an unblemished gift or service to God means that it is given without complaint and even though required of us is given in thanksgiving, not because of necessity. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Let us pray. 
Lord, freely we have received from thy hand. Give us grace freely to give unto thee. Grant that we present ourselves continually as unblemished offerings, that at heart, mind, and being we seek thy face, obey thy word, and rejoice in the privilege of being thy people, of obeying thee, and of serving thee. Teach us to be mindful of one another in Christ, members one of another, so that all the days of our life we may grow in grace, grow in understanding and fellowship and in service to Thee. In Christ's name, Amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. Comments about the relationship between uh, worship and everyday life. Two questions. Uh, which of those two should be modeled for the other? It should be modeled. Yes. Secondly, from a practical standpoint, what activities should be included in corporate worship? What are the elements of worship? First of all, the relationship of our everyday life and worship should be like the relationship of our head to our body. It's one life. Worship becomes dead when there, it has no relationship to our everyday life. So instead of seeing them as two separate things that we try to bring together, we see them as one thing. If the one is dead in relationship to God, the other is dead. It's one organic unity. Then with respect to the elements of worship, basically it is the heart uh, that uh, seeks to worship, to obey, and to love God with all his heart, mind, and being. That's why uh, Calvin chose as his emblem the heart offered to God. This was to him the essence of life and worship. The heart standing for the core of our life so that in all that we are and all that we do, we are the Lord's. Then our work becomes worship. Every part of our life is a way of serving and of glorifying God. Now, that was what distinguished the work of Calvin and made the impact of his work, as long as its integrity was retained, so powerful in Western civilization. It was when Calvinism was reduced to certain articles like the five points of Calvinism, that it began to be sterile. Now, it was not that the five points of Calvinism were wrong, but they were reducing it to agreement with certain 
premises, certain doctrines, when it was exactly what Calvin's emblem set it forth as being, the total unity of life in the service of God. And when those who profess to be reformed go back to that emphasis, then they will have the same vitality that uh, Calvinism had in its early years. Now, the significant thing about those men was that unlike the Counter-Reformation and the Reformation churches other than the Reformed, they had no powerful rulers to promote and to further what they were doing. It was rulers who instituted the Reformation or Counter-Reformation, utilizing, of course, some prominent men, thinkers within their fold. But the Reformed faith had to buck all rulers in church and state alike. But it was effectual precisely because of that unity symbolized in Calvin's emblem. Yes, Otto. I think you're talking about image and reality. Mm -hmm. The image involves abstracting, putting down abstract principles, and also elevating opinion over behavior. Yes. Yes. And that has been a problem in our time. Uh, one of the consequences of the modern movement in philosophy was that its rationalism uh, divided man. And problems were ostensibly soluble through pure reason. Uh, it culminated in Hegel, the rational is the real. So that uh, what was conceived to be as perfectly rational was ipso facto real. Well, you can believe the five points of uh, Calvinism very seriously, literally, but that doesn't make you reformed because it can be merely an intellectual assent. So this is the bifurcation that the kind of rationalism that... Uh, Hegel epitomizes, has led to. It doesn't mean, let me repeat, that the formulations like the five points are wrong. It means that the separation and the limitation of things to a small arena destroys what those things represent. Yes? Well, we see this in politics. Certain assumptions in liberal politics determine whether or not you're a good guy. Yes. But results do not interfere with these assumptions. The assumptions are held despite results. Yes, and one of the most common ar uh, arguments used by some recently in the uh, heart withdrawal from candidacy was that the withdrawal was 
some went so far as to say morally unsound because what he did sexually had no connection with his character as a politician and perhaps some would go to so far as to say that if he held up somebody it had no character no relationship to his character as a politician being a homosexual voters have said more than once has no relationship to his performance as a congressman and so on and so forth yes in that regard it's rather strange that Mr. Studd was forgiven what Mr. Hart was not forgiven and one was a homosexual relationship and the other was heterosexual yes Yes. Were you saying that there is no need for what we have come to know as a formal worship service? There is emphatically a necessity for it, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But what I am saying is that in the modern world, it has, as a result of rationalism, been separated too much from life. Worship is something that colors our everyday life. Worship and work cannot be separated one from the other. We rest from our labors to worship God. We do that because of a faith that our work is not in vain in the Lord, and that it is not our doing because it's God's doing. And therefore, it doesn't depend on us. We can rest 52 days a year and uh, countless number of other days uh, in the medieval calendar and in, with the Reformation which maintained those. And as you saw in Sweden, they still have those days. Uh, and uh, many of the Reformed churches maintained such a Christian calendar for a long time. A modern temper has destroyed it. But the feeling was that it was not in our endless working around the clock that we were going to change things. The world was not going to get better by our work, but only in the Lord. Then our labor and our worship in the Lord were effectual. Just as our work is not in vain in the Lord, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You see, there's a unity. And we, just as we don't abandon formal work, we don't abandon formal worship. But both have to be a unity. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us conclude with prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that all of life is a seamless garment and that where Christ is, all things are made new. that the very ground beneath our feet groans and travails, waiting for that glorious liberty of the sons of God, for the totality of the new creation. 
We thank Thee, therefore, that Thy grace and Thy work in us and our service unto Thee has its repercussions throughout all creation. That our labor is not in vain. That thy word never returns unto thee void, but accomplishes thine appointed purpose. That we live in a world of total meaning. And that meaning is the one thou hast established. How great thou art, O Lord, and we praise thee. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.